Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Sophia, one of your hosts tonight. We can't believe it, but it's been about a year since we shared stories with you all. Our podcast director, Professor Kristen Madrazo, was on parental leave celebrating her new baby. Yay! That is always my favorite reason why we take any sort of break. Um, and if you recognize my voice, that's because I'm, you know that I am Karen and I'm back and excited to be back with you all. Um, we've been doing this for so long and it is still such a joy. And this season, we have several new student hosts joining us for the very first time, if you would all introduce yourselves. My name is Ashley. Hi, I'm Lindsay. Hi, I'm Brianna. And I'm Tatiana. And I'm Christina. We're all ready to get into our first episode as hosts, which is also the first episode of the season. And last but not least, I'm Rebecca. As Christina said, if you are joining our big virtual roundtable tonight, this is the first episode of our seventh season entitled Over the Table. And in this episode, food. Two authors look at how a life-sustaining substance can open the door to better understanding oneself, one's relationships, and perhaps even one's emotions. With that, Let's get into the first story of the night. This story is by a new author to the podcast, M.A. M.A., pronouns he, him, is a 21-year-old English major enrolled at John Jay. Born and raised in New York City in a Puerto Rican household, M.A. often finds himself writing as a form of therapy, which directly led to his passion for writing fiction and short stories. In his spare time, he can be found gaming or exploring the city in search of tasty cuisine and arcades to express his prowess. He hopes to one day become a published fantasy author, writing stories to help people like himself cope with whatever problems they may be dealing with at the time. Now, let's take a listen to M.A.'s piece. I meet my sister's excited gaze with a sheepish smile of my own. This is the first time we have met up since I started this journey. We are standing in front of an outback steakhouse. My brother-in-law is inside seeing if there's any tables available. The first week was rough, admittedly. The meals, while nutritious, were the farthest thing from satisfying that I can ever begin to explain. But I knew that this was for the best. My health and my back were far too important to neglect now. This metal brace is a constant reminder of that. I never expected to be eating here in the first week into the program, May. I say in the cheeriest yet believably deep voice that I can muster. On all accounts, it is a pathetic attempt to bolster my masculinity. Yeah, my sister says, you gotta learn to use a dining out guide just in case you can't cook meals for yourself. That way you're not stranded with nothing to eat and starving yourself. Not eating is far worse than eating something unhealthy. So if you can't find anything nutritious to eat, just eat whatever and enjoy it. She gives me a warm, reassuring smile as Danny waves us to come in. And we finally enter. A wave of cold air and the aroma of grilled steaks hits me instantly. It feels refreshing. 
but I feel slightly guilty that walking for an accumulated 15 minutes already winded me. And the smell of steaks is the part that invigorates me the most, not the AC. We are escorted to a booth towards the end of the restaurant, an odd choice considering that it was largely empty and there were plenty of tables up front. As we were walking, I can feel what can only be described as grease on the floor, making it slippery but not enough to where I'll actually slip, just enough to where I have to be conscious of the way I walk. Not that I'm ever not conscious of it, it's just one of the things I'm most insecure about. My brother says I walk like a penguin and, well, it has forever shattered that perception of myself. That and being called fatty every day by him are some of the reasons I even started this diet. Why I'm going on it with my sister. We're finally seated and I sat across from them. I let out a sigh of relief from walking and adjusted my boot accordingly. It was beginning to big into my big toe. May spoke up. So what you been up to, Max? We don't really hang out. You never come over. She smiles again, but I can tell this one has woe mixed into it. She averts her gaze from me. I try my hardest to smile at her, but it feels so forced and awkward, and I begin to realize that I feel a bit awkward right now. I don't know how to reply to this question in a way that satisfies both parties. My truth, and the truth that's curated for me by my family, has always been a divide. Do I tell her that I cried myself to sleep last night? Do I tell her that I was ghosted two days ago and my heart is still aching? No, I can't tell her that. Maybe I should mention how my bestie and I were up all night listening to G-Idol together and how it was the only thing keeping me from crying all night. If I were me and I didn't know me, without a shadow of a doubt, I would think I was the most flaming homosexual with that reply, so it can't be that either. I muster up and say, yeah, you know, just vibing mostly. I've been doing a lot of writing and gaming, like usual. This is my family's truth, and to my family, this is what I have to say. It's the only way. She simpers slightly and adds, Yeah, you're always on your computer whenever we come over to the house. You know, Danny has his laptop you could plan if you ever want to come up. I shake my head, interjecting. I would, but my PC has, like, games on it, and I can't exactly get those games on your laptop, you see. I cut her off knowing that's a half-lie. Part of it was true because I can't play on his computer, but I can always forego playing in the first place and come over. I guess I just don't see the point in it. We don't have anything in common and it'll be as exhausting as being home. There's no point to it. Her simper turns into a slight frown, returning to a half-smile before she speaks up again. Oh, right, I forgot. You know, I don't play games like you guys do. Unless you count Mario Party, then I'm a major gamer. I laugh. A hearty, legitimate laugh. One thing about my sister I truly admire is her humor. She gets me in that way. As we're given the menus, May begins to talk about the program. She points to some of the dishes on my menu and says, You can order the steak with shrimp and broccoli. Just make sure that you say steamed and put the sauce on the side. It's completely on plan and it will count towards your lean and green for the day. I nod enthusiastically and take note of the meal. It seems legitimately feeling and beats eating lettuce and chicken all day. I chuckle slightly and say under my breath, if Dad saw me now, he'd ridicule me about what I'm about to order, saying it's unhealthy or whatever he says. Unbeknownst to me, I begin to frown, and only in looking at my sister did I realize it. May catches in and says, yeah, Dad has a way of doing that. Don't let him get to you, though. When I started, he kept saying how I was wasting my money or that I wouldn't stick to it. Now I'm lost 70 pounds and he hasn't said shit. I give an overconfident smile and nod to her. Good for you. 
He hasn't been the most supportive of me either. I asked him for the first week of doing this if he could hide the junk food away so I don't see it and wouldn't be tempted to eat it. It's still an encounter in all its glory, even though I asked him for the bare minimum. My frown became coupled with a furrow of my brow, and as much as I tried to hide it, I became angry. May resonates with me and adds, I know how you feel. I felt that way growing up too. He'd always want things done his way or he doesn't support it and criticizes it. He always criticizes it. It's why I've come home crying and Danny can tell you it's happened so much. He can never be satisfied. You know, I get that I haven't made the best choices. Not many girls want to be pregnant at 19. But I've done great for myself. I worked hard and I have an apartment and a loving family to show for it. As the food came, I looked at it like it's a foreign object to me, like an afterthought. The plate was sizzling and begging to be eaten, but I didn't reciprocate the feeling. I could feel my stomach sinking as time went on. I put the sauce to the side and focused on the meat and veggies. Then Danny chimed in. I'm always here to comfort her whenever he gets that way and remind her that she's only as strong as she is because of herself, not anyone else. No one can take that credit for that but her. I nod and begin to feel myself sweating a bit. Must be from the food, the salt and all. I'm not used to it since I've been eating less and less since starting this diet. Danny continued. It's why we kept wanting you to come over. I've always noticed you're in your room and you're not really hanging out downstairs. I could tell you feel what May felt. That divide from your dad and you guys. I glanced over my sister and I could see tears welling up. And it was only when I saw a small drip of water on my table and realized that I'm crying. Legitimately crying. I wasn't sweaty after all. I was doing my best to rationalize it, but I was crying. I catch myself before it becomes a hiccup-inducing cry and take my napkin to wipe my tears. Danny hands me another one, knowing the one in my hand won't last too long. The waitress comes around and asks if we're alright. I huff and nod and they do the same. I finally speak up, my own voice weak and fragmented. Yeah, I can honestly say I felt that. He'd always nitpick every single thing I did. And not just about me, but my mom too. It always made me so upset. It's why I never ate downstairs. I, I eat wrong. I dress wrong. I walk wrong. I, I talk. I pause for a moment and then sigh. Wrong. I always thought I was crazy. Mike would tell me how great of a dad he was. What he never realizes is that he was a great dad to him. She echoes the last part, both of us knowing exactly what it means. I continued. It's something I was never able to talk about until now. I always resented my own feelings about the situation, that I was a bad son for feeling it. My sister let out a chuckle and nods to me, and adds, Yeah, it's just something you feel, but can't really talk about or it'll make more problems. That's our family in a nutshell. I take another bite of my broccoli, frown, then bring the shrimp sauce back and dip the broccoli in it. It tasted amazing. I can feel my appetite coming back as well. Can I have this sauce on plan? I ask, and my sister nods. Just a little won't kill you, but don't say it out loud. We finish our meal in no time. I tell her how much fun me and Jay had last night. I tell her about Rita Sariyama and her anti-capitalist anthem, all pop, girly and all. As we walk out of the outback towards the mall, I finally speak up. If it isn't obvious already, I'm gay, May. You're the first person I've been able to tell this about myself in the family. It feels reassuring knowing that my feelings about everything with dad are warranted. 
I want to come over next weekend, if you don't mind. They both look at each other and smile at me, and nod enthusiastically. May spoke up. Of course you're welcome to, anytime, Max. Mike already told us, and so we kind of already knew, but we don't care. I scratched the side of my head. I know she went well by the don't really care part. I guess I was just expecting a grander reaction. Danny nodded in agreement and added, love who you love, man. The only thing that matters is that you're happy. I let out a huge sigh of relief. To finally be accepted by someone unconditionally feels so reassuring. Maybe this was all worth it after all. I'm losing weight and I gained my sister. Oh, wow. 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 It's such a tactile story. Like there are all these feelings of like emotional feelings of just like being up and proud of yourself and then down and you remember like how like down about yourself you felt and Mm -hmm. the contributions to it. And the shrimp sauce. Yeah. (laughs) I can feel that shrimp sauce. (laughs) And it, it just was a great great story to to hear and really heartfelt Max thank you so much for being here with us yes so much thank you thank you uh thank you for having me um I'm kind of really happy I can share this story and maybe inspire someone else if they're going through something else right now absolutely I don't doubt it and to kind of start us off with talking about the impact of this piece I want to acknowledge that how long something that we don't talk about nearly as often as we kind of like should is like how long the draft writing process can be when it comes to creative nonfiction like when it comes to telling stories that like are true and are parts of ourselves and stories that we've kind of like probably told at least a few times like with like friends close by in a very different way than it is when writing so just to start us off, can you walk us through your process in making the piece what it is today? Of course. Um, this is my first creative nonfiction course. Uh, I come from a background of fiction, fantasy writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so to finally write, you know, about myself and to be able to um, talk about things that I really didn't have the opportunity to talk about. My family is such a sensitive topic and it's very like, you can't say anything because it'll just stir more problems. So you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. And I remember when um, we got this prompt, this was for my creative nonfiction course. Um, this happened to me uh, at the time, it was about five months after this story happened where I actually started the drafting process. And I remember I immediately like went to my sister because as much as it is my story, Um, It's our story and our relationship being mended through trauma from our dad. And to go from a place where we weren't really talking to now we talk every day and are extremely close. I needed her permission and like almost her blessing to write this. And she was completely okay with it. Um, It's funny when I showed her the the final draft of it, she was like, yeah, I she kind of pushed me to become an English major. Before then, I was still like a psychology uh, double major. But this semester, I finally said it, I'm just going to be an English major. And it was through her pushing and her supporting me being like, this is really good. And I feel like I'm a part of a story. I would kind of joke that I'd be a playwright. And I was like, no, I can't do all that. 
but um, <laughs> in writing it, it felt liberating in a way that can't be accomplished by telling friends. I put it to paper and I acknowledged it and I proofread it over and over. And I'm at a point where I'm proud of it. I'm proud of what I wrote and hopefully it can help someone who was like me at one point, like struggling with that inner conflict and like family um, pressures that are given. So to be able to write this now, publish it, it's, it's so relieving to me. Mm-hmm. I just, I just want to ask, was, was the prompt something about family? What was, do you remember the, you mentioned the prompt. Um, prompt. So I believe the prompt was like, um, it was pretty like freeform. Like you can write about anything. It just has to be obviously something that happened to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember like there were, of course there were other moments that I could have tackled. But this moment was the most significant to me personally. And it's something that like is still very like ingrained in my head with like the dialogue that we had. I still remember that full conversation and like the looks that I was given and I gave back and the crying in front of the waitress at an Outback Steakhouse. Cause like, oh. God, it's so funny. Like, it's so funny that all this happened and I'm like seated and there's a waitress. She like constantly like looked at me too. She was like, is he okay? Like he's having a whole breakdown and eating a steak. Like is, do we need to call someone? And I'm, I'm over here like, no, cause God, this is, this is amazing. Like this if, is if the you most- must have a breakdown, you might as well be eating a steak. <laughs> uh, in front of my sister and getting her back and forging that relationship again, that it just wasn't there up until that point. So to have all that happen, it's, and to like write about it, um, I feel like the prompt really allowed me to do that just so that I can pick anything. She had like some like example prompts, like um, like minor things, but this one I felt was very personal to me and something mm-hmm. I wanted to share. That's amazing. Like hearing you gives me chills. Like, I feel like you're definitely gonna be, if somebody is going through something similar, they will definitely be like, okay, like I have the courage to do this. Somebody else did it. So mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. Um, I noticed that in your story, you told us a little bit about your life and the struggles you have gone through with your father. Um, and the scene, your voice is sad, almost broken. Have you developed like a better relationship with your father? Because you had mentioned in the story that he didn't support you. Do you feel like he supports you now? Or like, what do you feel when you see him? I don't think my relationship is on the men, definitely. Um, as liberating as the story was to say my story, it's still not something I can share with my father or share with my mother. I couldn't even tell them that I'm participating in this. I had to lie to them and say, hey, I'm doing a group project, like don't disturb me, but um, the relationship's still not mended. And for the first year of the future, I don't think it could be mended. Mm-hmm. We're at a, I'm at a point where I've come to terms with my feelings and I kind of accepted them for what they are. And until I see immediate, like, definite change I'm not willing to extend myself and my presence to them as much as they would want me to because I still walk out of the house and they still comment about you know my shoes look weird or like why are your shoes like that or why do you walk like that mm-hmm. and it's a constant cycle that can't be broken at this point I feel like it's too far to actually want to try to do something about which you know it's sad but I'm happy now to be able to say all this 
and mm-hmm. to not be afraid of any of the consequences that will come of it. Because I know that in the end, I have a support system and one that's not built on expectation and their truths. It's built on what I want to share about myself and what I want to be, as opposed to what they want from me, what they expect of me. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. It takes a lot of guts to make the right choice for right now. I feel like a lot of times with like rougher choices, especially ones that include family, there's always like the but they're your family they were with you during like in the past and it's like yes that's true and that I came to them and they raised me you know mm-hmm. or like you're gonna need them in the future and it's like well for the right now the situation is harming me and I think that you know protecting your present is 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 a thing that a lot of people are sometimes too scared to do so mm-hmm. I really commend you for that for mm-hmm. for just taken the steps that you gotta take to just like protect yourself and obviously like the future is the future we don't know it you know but the right now you are doing what's best for Matt you're doing what you gotta yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. thank you so much yeah and it takes considerable strength to be able to go through something like this like for anybody this would be very difficult to go through and not everybody can turn terrible or hurtful situations into basically art, uh, which is something that you've managed to do in this piece by taking these situations. Not only are you sharing it with other people, but you're creating something that's going to last for a long time that can tell your story, even if you're not able to verbally. And the manner in which you use the dinner night as an avenue to explore all of these deep fears and your relationship specifically with your father, brother, sister, and an extension your brother-in-law was so wonderfully done. Did you, at the time, realize what a pivotal night you had? Or was it only later when you recounted the events did you realize how important the dinner was? I think at the moment, I kind of knew that like something's changing because before this point, obviously, I didn't come out to my sister. Um, no one really knew about the real me. I kind of lived in their truth and just kept my mouth closed. But I think after that point, I kind of began to realize that I can be someone and not have to constantly have the burden of a mask on around them. And that very like day, um, we actually walked around the mall for a good like two hours, not doing anything, just talking and they asked me so many questions about like, oh, like in past relationships, how did you find out and things of like that? And they were interested in me and not trying to be like how my other, or I guess my family is, where they just want to do like bare minimum small talk. It, it felt really nice to know that someone wants to know me outside of a friend, you know, like mm-hmm. my actual family's sitting down and asking about me. Um, mm-hmm. And that, like, very week, um, the next week, I went over to her house, and it just continued. Like, we binge-watched seasons of shows on TV, and it was, like, so relaxing in a way that I hadn't felt before. I knew then, and I know now, that it was an important step in my journey as a person, but also in our relationship, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. That's so nice. 
that's amazing. Um, I really admire your courage in telling your truth and recognizing how significant and life-changing that night was for you. I know for sure that you're inspiring so many people to share their own story and um, sort of share their own experience as well with those who are going through the same thing. Um, onto a more personal side of the story, in your piece, you shine light on how you were unfortunately body shamed by your brother. Do you have any advice for those that are listening that are possibly being body shamed as well? What has helped you continue to want to be healthier despite the comments you would receive by your family? I know the biggest thing that um, advice that I actually got from my sister uh, after the fact of this story was that um, as much pressure as you may feel about looking a certain way and being a certain way, no matter what you do, whether you decide to try to alter yourself into being that, whatever person you're talking to that's telling you that are not going to stop those criticisms. You can be that perfect person with the perfect body and the perfect gait and the perfect voice, and they will still find something to tear you down. And that's something on them. That's not on you. Mm. So it's better to live your life the way you want and they criticize for that than to live the way they want and then be criticized despite it. Because either way, you're kind of in a bad situation. But at least when you do it for yourself, you're able to know that you're living your truth. And if that truth, people aren't accepting of it, then that's on them. Their love was conditional and you don't need people like that in your life at the end of the day. I think that's so true like the advice you gave me I mean to the audience I'm personally taking that to myself too because you know it's like it can be true to me as well like everybody receives criticism um I try I think I live the picture perfect life in front of my parents but you know you'll still receive criticism from anybody and it's really difficult to take it not personally you know mm. so I think that's really really uh stands out to me and resonates and I appreciate you for that advice so, and so you may have already answered this, but if anything, is there anything you would like your listeners to take away from the story? I think the biggest thing I'd want anyone to take away from this is that love may feel like, especially familial love, it may feel completely conditional. And whatever feelings of like either resentment or happiness or whatever, no one could take away those feelings for you. They may try to convince you that they're invalid, that what you're feeling isn't right. But at the end of the day, that's what you're feeling. And that's how they made you feel or whoever made you feel. So to be able to read the story and then like really think about how you have feelings and it's okay to have them. And whatever you decide to do with it is your prerogative. But just know that you are warranted. You don't need anyone else to tell you that this is okay to feel this way. All you need to know is that you feel it and you are going to deal with it. And no one can take that away from you. Oh, really good. Very what good. Great note to end on. Yeah. And with that, we thank you so much, Max, for sharing the story with us, for coming down, sitting down and chatting with us over Zoom and for sharing us a little bit of your insight. And hopefully this will touch somebody who's listening as well. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Max. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you sharing your story. Thank you.
this story is by a returning author to the podcast named Natalie. Natalie Salazar Garcia is a graduate of John Jay College. She majored in criminal justice and minored in fraud examination and creative writing. She loves to read, constantly looking for new books to add to her bedroom's library. Writing poetry is her favorite way to spend her days, but every now and then she'll write stories about people she's never met. She can be found wandering around New York, probably lost, with her navy blue headphones in. You'll notice her because she carries a red book bag named Petunia that's filled with a book, journals, and a dozen trinkets from her adventures. Let's take a listen to Natalie's piece entitled Los Dantes. I'm getting a chicken teriyaki order from the Queen Center Mall food court. I grab two handfuls of hot sauce packets and a pinch of duck sauce. I scout for the best table. One that's not too close to other people, but one that isn't fully isolated. I don't want to look like a lonely loser. I can make a run for it if I see anyone from my old high school. I sit down and open up my takeout box. The smell makes my mouth water. Sweet chicken with warm steamed white rice and a little bit of veggies. I rip open 17 packets of hot sauce and three packets of duck sauce. I squeeze every single drop out and let it drench up my food. I pull out a mini bottle of hot sauce from my backpack and let four drops mix with the other sauces. I let the sticky sauce get absorbed by the chicken and rice while I pull out a crumpled sheet of paper Dr. Ania gave me a month ago. I try to smooth it out with my hands, careful not to rip the delicate sheet. I read the questions on the sheet for the hundredth time. When or why did you start having thoughts about leaving home? This has been my homework for the past two months. To start asking myself why I ran away in the first place. I'd been avoiding the subject as smoothly as possible through the therapy sessions, but I'm running out of excuses. Dr. Ania has been patient with me since I was 15. I don't want to disappoint. She's been kind to me and my parents, always ready to help and assist. I should be able to do this small thing for her. I look down at my purple Converse sneakers covered in Pierce the Veil and My Chemical Romance lyrics I hand-wrote during English classes. Dr. Ania commented on them the first day I met her, said they looked pretty cool, custom-made, just for me. Looking at them now, a whole year later, they look pretty dorky, a little too emo for me. The longer I stare at my shoes, the closer the steam from the hot food gets to my glasses. The fog covers up my lenses, making the world look hazy. I take them off and rub the fog away with my bright blue sweater sleeve. I accidentally smudge some duck sauce on one of the lenses. I must have had some stuck to my sleeve without noticing it. Damn it. I place them on the table. Should I clean them now or before I go? If I do it now, I'll have to pack everything up and hope the seat will still be empty when I come back. But if I do it later, the duck sauce should dry by the time I finish eating, and it'll be easier to wash it. I'll have to be careful not to get too much water on the screws and keep the black frames from fading their color even more. I pick up the crumpled paper and think as hard as possible. My brain only brings up an image of Winnie the Pooh doing the think, think, think thing. Having such little brain cells is so hard. I stare at the paper and at my glasses. My eyes go back and forth between them. My brain clicks and clunks, its gears together, and I feel nauseous. 
I realized I wanted to leave home because of the stupidest reason. I finally have glasses. My old ones have been broken for months. And I had to wait weeks to get my eyes checked out. Then days passed by before my mom took me to go pick out some glasses. We waited in the cool shade for the buses and walked a mile through the high heat just to go see glasses at an optical shop near Sunnyside. We even took a break from the journey by stopping to talk to an old friend of the family. By we, I mainly just mean my mother. She stopped to talk in the heat for 45 minutes. I just stood by her side, sweating like a pig, with a heat rash threatening to spread across my inner thighs. An hour and a half journey for glasses, plus an extra 45 minutes for saying hello to a friend. The wait was going to be worth it. I was excited to finally get to pick out some new glasses. I'd been looking for the perfect type of glasses for months. I spent my time at the library looking through the magazines they had, hoping something would catch my eye. I flipped through them tirelessly while I was reading down my finds. Hoarding books from the library doesn't mean they'll let you keep them if they're long past their due date. There were hundreds of styles, dozens of colors, and about two handfuls of lens shapes. I wanted to get the best one, the perfect fit for my face. I wanted glasses that were meant for me, that would totally match my style of tomboy clothes. I needed glasses that were so cool they were going to take away attention from my old-looking clothes and my hand-me-down Puma sneakers. I read in a magazine that glasses had to match your personality. They had to scream at you while they sat on your face. After exactly eight different kinds of lists, hundreds of magazines, dozens of hours spent searching on the library computers, I finally knew what kind of glasses I wanted. I desperately wanted some librarian glasses. The kind that were big square-like instead of oval, with thick black frames. I saw them on TV before, and thought it would help me look cooler. The smart girl on TV wore them, and everyone looked to her for answers, so I wanted to be like that too. The girl was too smart to care about anything else. It was just her cool glasses and big brain power. My mom, on the other hand, wanted oval-shaped glasses, the kind I'd been wearing since elementary school. I hated those kind of glasses. It made it easier for everyone to make fun of me. Oval-shaped glasses made my big head look even bigger. They made my frizzy, untamed hair stand out even more. Worst of all, they make my eyes look smaller. My classmates always have a field day making fun of my eyes. I didn't want them to make fun of me in 7th grade. I didn't need them to ask me stupid questions again. Like, why a Mexican has Asian eyes? Was I even fully sure I was absolutely 100% Mexican? Of course I was fucking sure, you blubbering baboons. But my mom didn't care for my wishes. She chose the oval-shaped glasses with thin gold frames and asked for the color-changing lenses, the kind that turned dark when the sunlight hit them. She thought they were cute and befitting for me, that they would suit me just fine. I could already picture how I was going to look. No need to even try them on. I felt my eternal doom enter my life. Just by hearing her order my glasses, she basically signed my death certificate. I tried to object, to tell her I wanted the glasses on the other shelf, but her eyes told me no. She stared at me with icy cold eyes, furrowed her brows, and plastered on a thin, fake smile onto her face. It was the end of a non-existent discussion.
I didn't want to get yelled at on the way home, so I just stared at my vomit green Converse sneakers. I finally had glasses. The dorkiest nerd glasses anyone could ask for. And I didn't even want to use them during Monday math class, even though I sit in the back of the room. I squint both of my eyes hard together, hoping to know whether or not the squiggle on the board was a number 5, 8, 3, or 7. My face looked like a mix between Scrooge and Donald Duck the longer I stared at the board. I gave up trying to make sense of the numbers and started to copy from my deskmate. She wasn't too pleased with letting me copy her notes. I've been doing it for weeks on end, so she covers her notebook with her skinny little left shoulder. Bitch. Could you please move your arm? I didn't finish copying the notes. They're on the board. I can't see the board. It's not like I'm bothering you. I'm just looking. No, get bigger eyes or something. Would you ladies care to share with the class? Mr. Trainer asked us. His bald spot reflects the light off his head as he gets closer to us. Nope, nothing, I say. I don't need to get yelled at by him today. I stare forward, trying to make sense of the smudges I see. I give up and give in. I take out the light brown case holding my glasses and put on the monstrosity of glasses. I can see, yes, but I can also see Paola pointing at me and nudging her friend to look my way. The beauty of sight. I let my hair down, hoping its big puffiness will hide my face. It barely works. Once the bell rings, I pack up and remove my glasses. I place them in the water bottle holder on my book bag and head to science class. The rest of my day goes the same way. Every class starts and ends the same. I put my glasses on and take them off as quickly as possible. I secure them in the same place, so they're safe to travel the chaotic halls filled with pimples and pushy tweens. I don't need to lose them on day one. I see everything for an hour and then spend 10 minutes blind. I go by muscle memory. I let myself be pushed by other students. I cling to someone's book bag for my life. I don't know who it is, but I'm really hoping they're a classmate, or at the very least, going near my classroom. I smell Miss Fuller's voice. It shouldn't make sense. No human being can smell a sound. But being blind for months at a time makes one senses merge to keep you alive. Her voice smells like nails on a blackboard and flies swarming around food. Her voice makes me release my hand from my trusty backpack attached to a stranger. I sit in front of my last class. English with Miss Fuller is my least favorite part of the day. She's killed my love for my favorite subject. Nothing could ever resurrect it. She asks if I have glasses now as she points to my light brown case, and I bitterly respond with yes. I take them out and clean them with the special blue piece of cloth. I open my little Romeo and Juliet book and read out loud to the class, standing up. If my classmates didn't notice my glasses earlier, they are now. I can feel the stairs. The corner of my oval glasses catch the greasy index fingers pointed at me. I can hear the loud whispers. My heart beats blood quicker. I want to run away and hide. My cheeks turn bright red, which shouldn't happen because I'm brown. <sighs> School finally ends. I try not to make eye contact with anyone as I leave the backyard of the school. I double-check to make sure my lens case is in my water bottle pocket on my left. They are. I make my way through my normal route, the one that will let me make it home by 301. 
I pass by the bagel store that sells the stalest bagels on earth. I wouldn't spend $1.50 on their bagels even if I was absolutely starving. I walk further and pass a dollar pizza shop that sells pizza slices that put the school cafeteria cardboard pizza to great shame. I let the heat boil me alive. My red sweater captures the sunlight and cooks me. My worn out jeans don't want to let me feel a single molecule of air. My hand-me-down puma shoes pinch my toes, but I'm so close to home, I don't care. I run past the playground by PS64, nearly crashing into an ice cream vendor. I want to avoid seeing my mom's nosy friend, who only ever asks about my mom's other friends. I make it past the kind Indian fruit vendor, who always offers me an orange, and know it's just another three minutes before I make it to the safety of an air-conditioned home. Someone's opening the front door, and I rush in while they hold the door open to the apartment building. I dance my way up the three flights of stairs. When I get close to the door, I can hear my mom cooking. I already smell the enchilada sauce. The spicy smell spreads across the third floor, tingling my nose the closer I get to the door. I slide my backpack off and take out my rusty keys held together by a few pieces of ribbons. The second I walk in, my mom takes one look at me and asks, ¿Y los lentes? ¿Dónde están? Aquí están. I take off my backpack and place it on the floor. I reach for the case, and it's not there. I check the other side of the bag. Nothing. Maybe I put it in my bag. I open my bag and jumble around, hoping to feel the hard, smooth surface of the case. The painfully slow realization that my glasses are gone, that they up and walked away, sinks in. Eh, ma, no los tengo. My heart starts to slow down, preparing to play dead if the moment arises. My mushy intestines sink lower and lower into my stomach. My back feels as though fire ants are sinking in their disgusting jaws into my smooth skin. I can feel the back of my neck get hot, boiling hot. My kidneys cease to work. They squeeze together shut so I don't ruin my pants. The joints on my legs lock. They know running will make anything worse. My breath stays stuck in between my nose and lungs, waiting for her to make a move. My face muscles harden so as not to make a sound. ¿Cómo que no los tienes? ¿Dónde están? I, I had them. Los tenía, lo juro. Estaban aquí. I point to the left water bottle pocket. Before I can say another word, we start doing the tangle. She moves closer. I move to the side. She reaches out. I try to lean away. We're playing tag you're it, except I don't want to become it. We're playing cat and mouse. Her the cat and me the little brown mouse. She gets me cornered between the window and stove. I'm taller than her, but her presence is huge. There's no one home to talk sense into her. No one to witness the angry monster that is my mother. The flame on the stove is still on. I try to get away from it as much as possible. I know I have to stop trying to avoid the unavoidable, but I'm hoping she'll stop. That there'll be an opening to escape through. One where I can run to the phone and call my dad and explain everything to him. I want him to at least help me sort it out with her. Instead, I just feel the familiar stings. My muscles instinctively harden to lessen the feeling. My ears hear and feel the rhythm of the smack sounds. My eyes don't dare shed a tear. They'll only fuel her. 
I want it to stop. And so my voice croaks out. Wait, I'll go look for them. Please just let me go look for them. I take her paws as a sign of go. I grab my keys and run. I walk up and down the stairs five times, looking for the case. I find none. I race through the streets and start looking. My eyes try to see through the water in them. They search through the dirty street floors covered in grime. My eyes get tired and I'm bending towards the ground, hoping the case will magically appear. That the light brown case will shine so bright my poor sighted eyes will notice them. I start losing hope after searching the second block of my route for the third time. I pray to a God I don't believe in to help me find them on one of the other 23 blocks on my usual route. I notice the sun is setting and my time is up. I don't want to go home empty-handed, but I can't stay out. Kidnappers would love me. I walk the walk of shame home and once I walk through the doors again, the cycle repeats. (sighs) Back at the food court, I can't write because of glasses on the paper, let alone tell Dr. Nia. It's the dumbest sounding thing in the world. Plus, if I tell her the full story, social services would have a field day and take my brothers away. I take a bite of my spicy, soggy chicken and rice and let it dissolve in my mouth. I stare at the blank piece of paper with the small print asking me a bold question. I can't bring myself to answer the question. When or why did you start having the thoughts of leaving home? Such a stupid question, but if I don't answer it, Dr. Nia will say we can't finish our sessions together if I still haven't made any improvement. I want to be truthful. I know I do. I just want to get this out in the open and work on it with her. Finish up therapy and go back to normal. But I can't afford to mess up the work I've done to fix my life so far. I just transferred from Hillcrest High School. Adjusting to a new school as a senior is frustrating. I won't have anyone make life worse now. I put the blue pen to the paper and scribble. I don't know. Life just felt a little too much. I guess a few more months with Dr. Ania won't hurt. I'll just have to dodge her questions a little bit better. Oh, oh, wow. that was amazing. Yes. I love it. Yes, yes, yes. Beautiful, beautiful work as always. This story is layered and it touches on so, so many important issues. Mm-hmm. We are so excited to have you here tonight and to talk to you more about this piece. Yes, yes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Thank you for having me. Yes, I can say your story was extremely fascinating and amazing. And I just love the way you organize it. Your story is driven by flashbacks recalling the day you were finally able to get your glasses while you sat in the Queen Center Mall food court. I noticed that the story is divided into the present, the past, and then the present once more. Why did you decide to structure your piece in this manner? Because I felt like the flow worked better like that um i could have easily just pushed the like like the past in the beginning just like write the beginning as like the past the flashbacks but then it wouldn't really make sense later on as i introduced a new timeline um plus this this is how it actually happened in my head 
when I was sitting in the food court mm-hmm. um, with that piece of paper. Like my brain just, it remembered yeah. the moment where I, I pretty much just started disconnecting from my mother and no longer wanted to be home. So um, creating this piece was probably very like frustrating for me because I wanted to tell the story from the beginning. So like I would use like the flashback first and then continue on to the present. But the way I was writing it, just it wasn't flowing right. And it wasn't, it wasn't hitting the way I wanted it to. On the topic of structure, I think you are an expert at many things, braid being one of them. You are an expert at many things, braiding being one of them. But another thing I wanted to talk to you about is your use of detail in your piece. For me, I've known you for a while, Natalie, and your writing is always textured. And for example, in this piece, you don't use a few packets of hot sauce, you use 17. Um, You don't just mention that you're feeling fear. You describe what it feels like to be you in that moment. So I'm paraphrasing, but my heart slows down, preparing to play dead. My intestines sink and my breath is stuck between my nose and my lungs. And in my opinion, this is the kind of information that does so much for a reader. Yes. It turns you into a character. It gives you context to the events in the story. And it places the reader like right there in the scene with you. So I'm curious to ask you as our resident expert, (laughs) um, can you talk a little bit more about the art of picking a good detail in story writing? And do you believe that there's such a thing as too many details in a piece? Oh, I think (laughs) that's a lot. Um, I hope I can answer it. for the 17 uh, hot sauce packets, I, I just remember loving hot sauce so much at the time. And looking back, I think I think that's what gave me my stomach problems because it was so much <laughs> <was> more sauce. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, it was a soup at this point. But I just, for this kind of detail, I think it's important to be kind of realistic, realistically speaking, like, um, this is just how I like to eat my food. And like literal. Be very literal. Yeah. Yes. Be very literal. Be like, be like however you, you're, like, however I was. Like, even though I didn't like it, even though, like, I was like, man, I sound so dorky writing this because this is who I was. And I, it just makes me cringe. I didn't want to write certain details because I was like, man, I was so, like, I was a loser. Like, I wasn't, it wasn't cool kind of. Natalie, when I was reading your story and um, you wrote the My Chemical Romance and Pierce the Veil, I had the exact same thought. <laughs> like, oh my God. I was just, I'm looking back at all these kind of things and I'm like, where did, where, where did I find all of this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, but, why am I like this? Yeah. <laughs> um, and whatchamacallit, for detail, I always thought it was, um, it's how you place your details that make your story. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you can, you can have all these details, but they're in separate sentences and they don't make sense. It's too much information for the reader. 
So it's better just to place it maybe together or figure out how to reconstruct your sentences or merge them or maybe later use them on like later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and as for, as for too much detail, I think there is sometimes unnecessary detail. So you can have as much detail as is um, as possible, but it has to pertain to the story, to whatever you're trying to write and still be able to get across to your reader. Because um, I remember I took a course um, before this class and um, I think I have the quote somewhere. I just don't know where. Um, it, re- it was relating to how to write a story I wrote it down somewhere. Okay, basically it was um, to place detail that's actually, like I said, necessary. Um, but let's say you have like a, a gunshot. Let's just say you're writing a story about two lovers and there's like, you, you mentioned there's a gun in the, in the room. If by the second chapter it hasn't gone off, there was no point for you to mention the gun. Right. That makes sense. That's excellent. So yeah, I I wrote this with a lot of detail and I had to like dig deep and it was it was, it was just like my inner self was like, please, why? Why did you go out the door like this? <laughs> but looking back, it was it was pretty good because it allowed me to be myself in the weird ways, in the converse, in the in the way I, I like to eat my food. Like looking back. I mean, I used to think I I was shy and was awkward and very lonely and was like afraid to be confident in myself. But these were things like being okay with taking 17 packets of hot sauce from the from the place and just stuffing it in your bag <laughs> and eat it. It was confident enough to not care, just to eat it the way you liked it. Yeah. And having shoes that looked um kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. All this stuff. Um I was like I was pretty confident as a kid and I just I doubted myself. So I was like, I'm, I'm proud of how I, I, I managed it. I think especially in your pieces and like everything you just mentioned, the, the details you included were a way to get to know you as a character in the story, but they're also a way of getting to know you as the writer, which is really interesting because it pulls that veil in between character and writer away. And I think that that's one of the gifts of this genre and I love that you shine through in this piece, all nerdy and geeky and for yeah. who you were. Because I'm reading it smiling. I think yeah. it's beautiful. Thank you. I do think that your details were so perfectly placed because when I read, it started off in QCM, right? And you said you sat next to escalators. I know that mall. I know where you were at. I was able to perfectly picture what, I don't know what you look like. I don't know who you are, but I was able to picture that girl sitting there with her 17 packets of hot sauce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And like that created like such a perfect setup and build so that when I was continuing on to parts of the story, like you're walking home, you're going out to search for your glasses. I don't know where you live, but I was still able to picture all of that. And I could see Mm. it like I was living it. Like it was just so perfect. Like Mm. I love the way you place the details. So props to you on that. And diving more into the actual story, uh, you briefly mentioned your father and your brothers, and you said you debated calling your father and how you were concerned about having social services, having a field day, and taking your brothers away. I'm just curious how your relationship is with them, and how are they with your mother, and where were your brothers during this back and forth with your mother about your classes? 
So for this, this was like years ago. Um, my relationship with my father um, back then was like, because me and my mother didn't see eye to eye. And there was this, I don't know why, but there was like this wall between me and her um, that was there since I was a child. Um, I built a better relationship with my father than I did with my mother. So if I told my dad, like, hey, can you talk some sense into her? This is what happened. This is how it happened. Um, and, you know, maybe get her to calm her down because she would listen to him more than than me. Um, and for my siblings, um, my youngest brother was in his room and my other brother still hadn't gone out of school yet. So he wasn't there. Um, so when this all happened, it was mainly like I had just gotten home from school. This all happened in a matter of like 10 minutes. And um, because this, this, is, this was a relationship I had with my mother. It was more like a cat and mouse kind of thing. Um, like I mentioned, um, my siblings wouldn't, I wouldn't let them even take part of it, like, or even try to help me out because it was just, I didn't want her directing it to them. Um, or, you know, just for them to see her like that, I felt like it was just something I was supposed to witness or deal with as the older sibling. Um, in hindsight, it sucks, but, um, at the time I, I just, I wanted to make sure my siblings didn't have to go through that because I, I, I remember how it felt not being able to trust my mom, not being able to like, you know, have that kind of communication. And I didn't want my siblings to ever feel like that or go through that. Um, so, and I mean, I lost my glasses. So at the moment I was like, this is my fault. This is my problem. Um, but my relationship now with my dad has grown with my siblings. Um, we've bonded more and, um, my little sister, um, she was still too young. So she was a baby and, she she was in her room sleeping so that was that um but my relationship with my mom has tremendously improved um it's great a lot so yeah. it that's amazing if you would have told me like at like 12 13 like you would be talking to your mom you'd be able to have laughs make jokes be able to bond with her and be able to look her in the eyes i would have laughed in your face because the main thing was like, I want to get out of here by the time I'm 18 and I'm 23 and I'm still, I'm hanging out with my mom. I go to church with her. I go shopping with her and all this kind of stuff um, because I went to therapy, because she also went to therapy when wow. she realized um, that this was, this was a lot to have been done to a, a kid. So she realized, I don't want to do this um, to my other children. Wow. And um, I also put my foot down in terms of it. Cause I was like, I don't ever want you to do that with my little sister. Um, so figure it out or, um, we are going to have some legal problems. I'll figure mm-hmm. it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I was like, her go to therapy. I made her and my father made her because he was like, I don't know what's going on. Maybe something happened to my mom back then. We don't know that is between her and her therapist at the time. But we moved past it. We worked on it. It wasn't easy. It was yeah. really a rough ride um, because yeah. we were starting from zero. Well, yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of the things that are worth doing is hard to do. Right. Yes. Being able to 
hold out on it. Like, even though it's amazing hearing you talk about, you know, wanting to have or had in your mind that as soon as I turn 18, I'm going to be out of the house. But knowing that even past that, you're still here, you're still pushing along, you're still working together as a family is a very, very nice thing to hear. And it's a very, it makes me feel you're a strong individual for doing that. Yes. You're showcasing that sometimes even when it looks like it's never going to get better, it can and it could. And in some instances, it will. It did. It did get better. And um, my time in Mexico, while my mom wasn't there, I was there by myself. I was spending time with my grandparents. I got to know more about my mom. um, And I felt much closer to my mom during my time there because I found out more about her culture. And my grandparents would tell me how she was as a child. And then I found out a lot of the things that my mom went through um, growing up. So I was like, okay, so now I can see a little bit clearer as to why you are who you are sometimes. Yeah. Um, there are also things that I learned about her and I'm like we have this in common and it's very (laughs) shocking because I was like there's no way there's no way we have this in common for one um, when I was younger I loved to dance a lot Um, and my mom when she was um, in school and at a young age she loved to dance and she was always participating in the dance classes in the talent shows Oh. and I loved it and I was like do you have any like I'd ask my grandparents like, do you have any of her costumes any you know maybe any photos and stuff like that they're like sadly no because most of the stuff was given away or gifted or someone let us borrow this stuff for her um, but your mother was a very beautiful dancer and she loved things to be perfect and um, I was like I feel so bad for her partners because they had to be perfect she was a very like perfectionist so I was like, okay, I get that part. Um, but I did, um, they did have a skirt from her. Um, that's for, uh, whatchamacallit? It, it's a traditional skirt um, worn. Um, and they had hers, so they altered it so that I could be able to wear it. And wow. That moment, like, I started crying as soon as they put it on me for that day because um, this was, like, the closest thing I had to the stuff my mom had worn. That was the only piece they had saved from her childhood, and I was able to wear it. I was able to wear it and um, celebrate that day. It was for um, December 12th. Uh, We celebrate the Virgin Mary on that day, and we trade stuff. I do have a shirt that I got made for that day. Is it okay if I show you? Yes! yeah of course and we'll describe it for the listeners yes so that you all can be in the booth as well oh it's this shirt <gasps> be beautiful so pretty it has to be sewn in and it's for um if i remember correctly it's uh, for a malinche for a malinche you basically dress up in old traditional wear and you go out and you trade with other kids, with other families. I traded tamales for dulces, sandwiches, toys, and stuff like that. I was the only adult there. I was mainly for children. <laughs> but I was the only adult there, like just happily giving them out. I got to live it. And for the last time. Yeah, and it was so much fun. And my aunts and my uncles were like, 
how old are you? Because I'm 23, but I'm acting like like a whole child, just absorbing all of the love and the culture that my mom was surrounded with. And I was just, I was just very happy. That's awesome. For the listeners who did not get to see that, it was this white blouse and the like the top collar it was like a thick collar that was like embroidered with like red flowers and green, right? And it's beautiful. And I can totally see you going out in the same style of like the one kid who is still excited about Halloween, even though they're probably a little too old for Halloween. But you know, when you can when you can when you can do the things that your inner child is like craving and that connects you to the people around you like whenever is whenever you know that's really cool that you get to do that and in Mexico too mm-hmm. um it was a lot of fun mainly because I had for a long time disliked my own culture growing up Ooh. I disliked my culture my ethnicity my skin and all of this so so just being able to do that just sitting there absorbing it and looking everywhere <laughs> all the beautiful um, colors surrounding me and all all of this tradition that I had missed out because I disliked it so much growing up I had this hate for it I had this inner hate for myself and stuff like that so um growing up I was like I don't want anything to do with anything Mexican there's no point there's, there's just there's so much bullying that happened to me and all this stuff made me had a dislike for it but as a grown-up it's like I want it. I want the food. Yes. I want the culture. <laughs> Give it to me. It's it's all I'm going to need um, for the rest of my life. And honestly, this entire trip going to Mexico for five months was just to just to hear my like heal my inner child and also do it in spite of everything that I had told myself um, that I would never do. So like I was like, I was a kid, you know, as a kid, you you have all this um all this way of perceiving yourself so I didn't like my culture and if you had told me at like eight nine that you'd be going to Mexico at 22 living there for a while and spending time with your grandparents I would have just been like yeah okay sure <laughs> you know, sure here we are now here I am I came back with all these gifts all these <laughs> trinkets all this clothes all these memories and I intend to continue traditions here because most traditions um they like my family has stopped doing them they've forgotten how or they never learned how because they left pretty early to 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 immigrate here so I've been able to bring that back and incorporate it so let's bring it okay um Natalie, you mentioned your inner child, and I think that is such um, a powerful term to use, especially when speaking on generational trauma. You mentioned your mother's past and how that has drastically altered your your opinion on her. Um, and I like to point out that when in your response to Dr. Anya's um, question, you write a simple answer that, oh, I don't know, life just felt a little too much. Um I feel like that question mirrored just a little bit to your mother's questions on the whereabouts on your missing glasses and in, in that they both surface very feelings of insecurity. Has um, being away from home, especially having spent so much time in Mexico, has all this time altered these um, your opinions for her for better or for worse? Mm, I would say it's altered them for better because I understand her more 
Um, I also took um, psychology, sociology in college, which also helped me understand a little bit more about, um, oh, and I took anthropology as well. So it helped me understand a lot more of like what immigrants can go through, how these, like all of this information in regards to their process in integrating here and learning how to live here. Um, all these little things that I, I learned in school, I never really realized growing up because I just thought it was part of life. But like once I um, dive into the detail and like I'm able to pinpoint certain things, for instance, um, I was part of the integration process, basically. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Basically, my parents were trying to become Americans and I'm the first born child, um, the first American in their family. So it's like, they don't know what to do. They've never, they don't know anything about the culture. They don't know anything about like, um, like for, for here, it was hip hop, rap, and all of these different types of music. But for them, it was like rancheros, este, cumbias, mariachi music. So for them, it was like, this is music we've never heard of. And so um, it was scary to them. Even music was scary to them. And I was part of, being able to learn the English language, translate for them. Um, I was, I had to make friends and I, I didn't really have a, an easy time doing that growing up because friends equaled adults that they could talk to, either immigrants that they could also relate to or um, people of American descent who were already Americans, I mean, that yeah. they could talk to and look for guidance perhaps. So that was basically um, something I had to do. And um, the other part was like, I had to inform them of like the outside things, like TV for one thing. I didn't know Disney Channel existed till I was like 12. So um, <laughs> wow, that, that, was, that was a big shock when people told me, yeah, this, you'd never heard of Disney Channel? I was like, no. And then when I got into it, like I loved all their shows and everything, uh, but I felt like I was so behind on these things. Like I was supposed to already know them. Um, as for music, even now at 23, my friends are like, you've never heard of this song either. It's like a, um, like it could be a mariachi song. I've never heard of it because my parents um, tried to leave it behind. So they, they wouldn't play it yeah. as much. Um, your, your story serves as a great um, reflection for a lot of um, first generation Mexican-Americans who grew up in like, in sort of, not in America fully, but not in Mexico either. Um, I love reading your story so much. Yeah, because it, it reminded me so much. Like, look at us. We have the same glasses. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so for this story, I mean... Mm. I feel like our listeners have gotten so much of you and also just spaces where they can kind of see their own stories reflected as well mm -hmm. and also done in such a beautiful way so just thank you for being here today because yeah, we all 100 yes. thank, thank you so much from this thank you thank you of course thank you for having me here That concludes our first episode of our seventh season, Over the Table. We're also excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com.
or by searching Life Out Loud podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible. Including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. 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 <laughs>